Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Today on In the Know, I have an amazing conversation with the founder of Zomper, which lets you find apartments online and book them like leases, not hotel rooms. Fast-growing, biggest in their category, and the guy started as a classics major at Oxford. Let's hear how he made it big. Hello and welcome to In the Know, where I, Amal Sarva, co-founder of Notel, get to talk to some of the interesting people that I meet and share with you our conversation. In the Know, because you don't know this yet, and I'm going to tell you right now, is partly to share the interesting stuff that you know about, and it's just my privilege to bump into guys like you since we work in a similar business and I travel around with Notel with like the companies that are in the base cities we get to. But it's also um, a secret project to learn about how to build a really big idea. <laughs> of my podcast interviewing interesting people, and uh, perhaps my grandest vision would be to turn it into something like uh, what Martha Stewart did with Omnimedia. I interviewed her recently on an episode here, and I got to hear all about her creative fires and her managerial challenges as she went through life uh, building a vast uh, media conglomerate. So maybe one day, Anthemos, you'll get to say that you were part of it at the beginning and your advice helped us get there. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you for having me, Amal. I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for joining. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to Anthemos? You must be Greek, but you don't sound Greek. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's a Greek name, Anthemos Georgiadis, uh, British accent. I uh, grew up in London with a Greek dad, British mother. Uh, professionally before Zumper, worked at BCG for a number of years, um, had a quick stint in British politics, writing uh, economic speeches, and then uh, came to the US for grad school. And that's kind of where Zumper began. Yeah, I mean, you're a classicist. You're like an Oxbridge classicist. I, I like to tell people that, but I, I think a computer science degree would have <laughs> probably fast-tracked me faster. But uh, I think I was I was someone who was uh, never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. I didn't aspire to be a CEO. I had kind of just had a problem in my 20s multiple times, uh, kind of looking for apartments and then uh, trying to actually close apartments and kind of eventually no one else was solving the problem. So that's what led me into solving it. And then, as you know, once you're in it, uh, kind of no way back. So I kind of feel like after Zumper, I'm stuck with being an entrepreneur for life. But I yeah, never, never thought I'd end up on this path. But once you're in it, if it appeals, it's it's really hard to see a different way afterwards. But if you <laughs> yeah, well, that. let's get let's get there. Oh, totally. I mean, let's get there because I want to. And in some ways, it's it's a little like mine. I um, I'm basically an academically trained philosopher. I studied philosophy at Columbia, and then I did a PhD at Stanford, and I was working on mind. And uh, part of that whole thing, of course, huge component of what we do in philosophy overlaps a lot with uh, classics, and um, uh, many of the classical Greek and, and mostly the Greek philosophers. We don't read a lot of. Uh, of those Italian Roman people, but some of them. Yep. Uh, and and actually, it was in philosophy that uh, I decided we never shipped anything. And I kind of liked shipping things. I liked having an impact on the world. And I was always fiddling a little bit on the sides with uh, little technology things and startupy kind of things, never with great sincerity, but kind of you know feeding my interest and maybe making a little money. And I wonder when when you were doing classics uh, or reading classics, as you might say, uh, if you were fiddling around too. Yeah, um, no, is the honest answer. I, uh, <laughs> I was a to total nerd, and um, between partying at college and being a total nerd, and yeah, doing Latin, Greek, and philosophy, actually, no, uh, 
I'd always talked, I, I, I felt like very entrepreneurial. I'd always talked to friends about doing ideas, but I was that classic talk about ideas and never actually consummate anything as a, as a teenager and in my early 20s. So I wasn't that naturally born entrepreneur to begin with. Uh, and, and then I took the most risk averse move ever where everyone was interviewing for Goldman and McKinsey and BCG after college. And I did the same. And uh, I... I think I felt out of BCG. So actually, during academics, I kind of just wanted a party and have a good time during college. But at BCG, I felt that where even though you're working with, you know, you're 24 and you're working with a CEO that their executive team don't get to work with as much, I still felt at BCG, you spend like, you know, three months on a project up till four in the morning every night and you deliver this like ridiculously kind of quant package to the executive team to deliver on. And then it kind of just sits on their shelf for months and, and half the people never actually implement it. And so whether it was academics or kind of actually having gone out into the world, I kind of, that was where I started to have a, not a disdain, but a frustration with large companies and how slow they were to actually execute. And so weirdly, I actually felt what you felt in philosophy, I actually felt it at BCG in the business world and was just so frustrated that companies moved so slowly and they were so risk averse. And I think that's where I really started to get the feeling that I might belong on the, the painful entrepreneurial path. I certainly uh, came to understand that it was different to give advice than it was to yep. make impact, do things, take action. Uh, and yeah, and that yep. it felt like the philosophy department, honestly. It felt like we were writing papers <laughs> and polishing them and eventually presenting them in front of a seminar or something and then and simply you know moving on to the next thing. And you never really knew if, if your big new idea was going to land yep. anywhere. But then you made the, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess it is a common thing for someone in consulting to go to Harvard Business School. Um, and that was your thought, like, let me get out of consulting and find a way to start a company. And the way I'm going to do it is pay someone else the money to tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, with all due respect to BCG, I had a great time there. But I was in New York, uh, I got transferred from London to New York. I was living in New York and I was thinking, that's when I had like a, a couple of really poor rental experiences again when I moved to America and I was trying to think about the idea and just no one else was solving it. So I was like, wow, maybe this is a place to do it. And I thought uh, grad school was a great soul search opportunity. So a lot of BCGs go to HBS, but in, in, the, in, the, in London where I started my career, actually not very common to go to business school. Most people plow through and kind of rise through the ranks. So um yeah, I was, I was in New York at probably three in the morning one night doing some slides. <laughs> it's like, the, this has a limited shelf life. And I think a lot of the best people in consulting end up becoming operators themselves and don't end up becoming partners at their firms. There are obviously some great counterexamples to that. But um, yeah, I, I was kind of in New York thinking, how, how do I stay in the U.S. but outside BCG? And I, I applied to HBS and, and Stanford for business school and just uh, thought it was kind of two, two kind of advantages. One was just do some soul searching at business school about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And the second one, just as a British national, was this is the best way into the US where you get to go to grad school. You get a year's grace of grad school, uh, after grad school to kind of have your visa and, and whether you work at a company or do your own thing, you get a, a year of leeway to see if you can get it off the ground before you have to get an O1 or a green card. So um, for both visa reasons and soul search reasons, uh, grad school was, was incredibly helpful and it was terribly expensive and incredibly scary to start a company at grad school where you're already accumulating a bunch of debt but if you're in you're all in and you just as you know you just have to go and do it 
Yeah, there's a bunch of interesting themes there. I mean, it is a, an arc that a lot of people follow. I mean, you also have the visa thing in your narrative there about some breathing room and uh, um, uh, why um, accumulate reality, use the time in school where your opportunity cost is really low because you're you have the air cover of the degree as it's ticking over and getting done. Uh, and mess around until something really starts working. And it, it, my parents won't ask me what I'm doing because I'm in a fancy business school. <laughs> exactly. I can try to get this thing up off the ground. And you know what? American grad schools are, um, I think they're really kind of doing a lot of good work, and I think it's true with undergrad, where in the UK, like, I think we still think about encouraging entrepreneurship by giving VCs tax breaks and, you know, encouraging more VC and angel investing. But I think in the US, what, what the US really has got right is getting into entrepreneurs' heads on, like, day minus one to, to be like, it's okay, like, take a risk. It's okay not to take the Goldman job. Take a risk, build something. If it doesn't work, like, sure, that's sad, but you're infinitely backable again as long as, you know, you were ethical and you tried really hard. You, you'll be able to try this multiple times, whereas I think in Europe, you, they don't get into an entrepreneur's head to, to kind of see risk as a, a lesson, not as a, something that's really bad. And I think HBS, where I went to grad school, was really good at getting in your head on day minus one to tell you, take the risk, don't take the internship at the big company, we'll bank you to go and build this in San Francisco or Boston, wherever, over your summer in between your two years. And and like that's how I started Zumper, where I, I had a grant for business school for like seven grand that allowed me to build the first version of the product. And and then there was no looking back. And I spent my whole second year just building Zumper from kind of scratch. So I'm really grateful to grad school and what it did for me in the U.S. It's, it's definitely not for everyone, but I think I needed the, the nudge, and grad school gave me the nudge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you're echoing a theme that uh, my friend, uh, you know, great entrepreneur, I guess mentor more than friend, but also friend, um, European entrepreneur, Martin Varshavsky, likes to talk about the two cultures on both sides of the Atlantic and the culture in the U.S., which, uh, which does not penalize failure. It treats it as learning. Surely after yep. you tried hard and were ethical, you also learned a lot. You're going to be way better the next time. Many people would agree. Uh, and it also does not penalize success. And I think both sides of that uh, in, in the European environment are, um, you know, it's the skill and Charybdis of the, of the entrepreneurial adventure there. It's like, if you fail, you deserve it. You're a loser. And if you succeed <laughs> and you're um, filthy thinking rich, right. somehow unethical, isn't it? I mean, to, to be a tall poppy or whatever the relevant term in the relevant yep. uh, country is, <laughs> yeah, that's right. is, is just not cool, right? <laughs> like to strut around because you made something great is, is almost, um, it's uh, outre, I think. Yeah. You, it, your friends well, call you up? Back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know they, I mean, the thing that I think the European friends of mine uh, can't believe is you can point to entrepreneurs in the U.S. who've raised $100 million plus, uh, failed, um, learned a lot but failed. And then their next startup, you know, they raised like a $50 million seed round and ultimately build a unicorn. And they cannot understand how that person was back the second time in Europe. Whereas, as you mentioned a minute ago, in the U.S., again, with the caveat as, as long as you're ethical and you work hard, you know, they see it as a lesson. It's the first hundred million you raised on a different company was a hundred million dollar lesson. And you then have a unique experience that most people in the world don't have the privilege of having and you get to apply everything you learn to the next one. I'm not saying it's, you know, the investors who gave you a hundred million are, are happy about it. They're probably not, but 
it's it's an ecosystem and pulling up the macro view i think you you the reason you have the Googles and the Airbnbs and the Ubers of the world in the US is because of that attitude towards failure. And I, I had a quick stint in British politics where, you know, we were trying to cultivate what they call Silicon Roundabout. And I was only there for six months on an election. So barely scratched the surface, but we're, we're not even close. And I'd, I'd love to say that London's going to catch up, but um, there's, a, there's a long way to go. And most of the reason is cultural, not kind of talent. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds. There are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and talk to me a little bit about the trends because it was sort of a welcome comment you were making about um, about Harvard Business School, that it encourages risk-taking these days. It, it was not the classical view uh, when I finished undergrad in the 90s, and I finished at yep. um, graduate school in like 2003, I guess. We would we, we certainly didn't think that the business school, and maybe at Stanford is a little bit different, but the other um, business schools were all, you know, conservative wankers. To translate it into <laughs> the epithet they probably hurled hurled at you on your campaign. Good but, British you know, expression. They, they were all going to yeah, they were going to like consulting yeah. and banking and hedge funds and private equity and and really very risk averse. I, I mean, at this point, there are very large, very successful companies that have been built in Europe in the last ten years. Spotify, Adyen, many more. Uh, are, are things changing a bit, a lot, fast, accelerating? Yeah, we're getting there. Um, I think all the right things are being put in place. I think my one criticism is, I think, in terms of like government and educational support, it's nowhere near enough on the entrepreneur side. It's still highly focused on uh, the investor side with, with tax breaks for both angel investing or capital gains breaks for venture investing. You need those things, but mm-hmm. there, there needs to be far more support on the first $10,000 into a company to get in as the person's head on day minus one. So it's there. I think the talent is there. I mean, there's the technical colleges, not just in, in the UK, but in Paris and in, in Germany and, and in Eastern Europe. I mean, the technical talent is there. It, it's funny because you think the cultural shift would be easier. The hard skills, you'd think they'd be harder. But actually, it's, it's the cultural shift that is taking much longer. And and look, the truth of business school, back to your point, is HPS absolutely are trying to emulate Stanford and change the culture at HPS. But, the, you know, the, at a class of 900 people, at one point, probably 10% of the class was working on a startup. Which, and this was in 2012, which is amazing. But today, there's probably 10 of my classmates who are 
that's amazing. CEOs or co-founders of one of the startups. And so the, the, there's a lot of work still to do because only 1% of my class has probably stuck it out with entrepreneurship. And the other 99% are either kind of working at a tech company, but in, in management or they're working at a big company and nothing wrong with either of those things. But as you know, the startup journey is painful and it is not for everyone. We were the six years in. Um, I've raised 90 million so far in venture. Um, yeah, Kleiner, our biggest backer. Uh, and yeah, the, the vision of the company is to make renting an apartment as easy as booking a hotel. And I'm, I'm sure Notel has some parallels to that. Um, we, we went about one for two ways. Uh, first stage was build millions of monthly users. So we, we drive over 11 million visits a month organically now. So we have a pretty wide search audience. And then phase two is very much once you've built uh, this top of the funnel out to actually uh, start to represent landlords directly on the transaction. So instead of kind of using intermediaries, landlord, um, renters can come straight through to the landlord, the landlords using Zumpa software, and we can actually have renters book apartments, pull out their phone, leave a deposit, and actually book an apartment, take it offline, and ultimately pay rent to it. And I think the humbling thing in my first startup is how long that takes. So Six years in, I think people on the outside think that we've moved pretty fast. But on the inside, and I'm a pretty impatient CEO, uh, you know, I probably thought it would take us three years to get to the stage we're at now, and it, and it took six. And um, we're so excited about the future. We're just scratching the surface of really kind of building this Airbnb for, for the one-year lease. But it's uh, there's a whole ton of work ahead. And so even though I'm, I'm really happy with where we are, I also feel like we've barely begun and the task ahead remains daunting, despite the fact we've raised like just short of 100 million. How how do you feel about that and Notel? I I think you have a kind of parallel model, different way of executing it in in obviously commercial real estate. But I mean, like, do you feel like it's been fast uh, enough or do you want to go faster? (laughs) Well, it's been breathtaking uh, for us. We, um, We started three years ago. And yep. uh, we are where we are now. And you could describe it two ways. One way you could describe it is we are m- more than half of our business is in just one city, New York. And in that city, uh, we're not even half of 1% of the office market. Hmm. You could say that and you could be like, Jesus Christ, this is a long way to go. And uh, the other way you could look at it is, well, we went from one uh, property to almost 200 in three years, uh, have raised close to 200 million and similar colossal revenue and um, hundreds of people and we're in five countries and we'll be in another three or four by the end of the year. Uh, We're opening a dozen buildings uh, every month at this point and we'll be opening 50 a month by the end of the year. And from that one, from the ant eye view up, it is just insanity. But when you zoom out a little bit um, with some perspective... The, the 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 just it's just an ocean of a market. The uh, the hotel market in in North America is like one or two hundred billion a year, which is great. And Airbnb is definitely a big piece of that, and it's going to get a lot more than they have now. But it's just a couple hundred billion. Well, a hundred billion is the office yep. market in New York. I'm very sure that the residential market is yep. several trillion a year in uh, in North America. When you think about everybody that's got apartments and that lives somewhere, whether it's one year or ten years or permanently, it's just uh, cosmic in scale. One thing in investor pitches we've never struggled with, which is I think in real estate, you and I are beneficiaries of the fact that the addressable market 
is enormous. Not just the GMV, the not just even the total rent, but even just like I, I guess for you, it's the GMV because you're taking the rent. But like for us, we're taking slices of the rent as like transactional revenue. But like it's it's absolutely enormous. And and then your point is like I think your point about being a tiny fraction of a percent of a market. I, I see that as the optimist of like, yeah, imagine you can get to four percent, which still seems very small. But I mean, you could be a public company with four percent of a couple of the biggest commercial real estate markets. It's a, it's such a big market where you know there are always other things like unit economics or customer acquisition that you'll get drills on. But I think one of the check marks when you and I go into fundraising is is kind of check before we go into the room. And I think that's. Not something I ever thought about before doing Zumper, but it's uh, it's been helpful. The, the flip side is we face a lot of competition in real estate because it's such a big market. So there's a startup every other week uh, trying to do something here. So, you know, with the bigger market size comes more competition. But uh, I think as an entrepreneur, you're, you're kind of ready for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, how to make something small really big. Let's talk a little bit about that story arc. And um, I'm curious how you thought about it at Zumper and how you might apply it to this fabulous new podcast taking off virally. Yeah. Um, so for us, um, we, I mean, it's all, always been about the oscillation between supply and demand. So, you know, day zero, you start with no renters, no landlords, and you, you've got this daunting task of trying to build a two-sided marketplace. So for our first two years, um, we uh, focused entirely on supply. When we raised our Series A from Kind of Perkins, we, we had like 30,000 users a month on the renter side. We were absolutely tiny. But um, our first two years were uh, spent actually figuring out how to onboard supply to the platform. So we built a bunch of tools that were almost resembled like SaaS tools for small landlords. And they could use these tools agnostic as to the fact whether Zump had an audience or not. So these tools were like mobile first. They allowed landlords to like onboard their listings, take photos using their mobile phones, uh, post their listings through this app, and then we'd syndicate the listing to like Craigslist, Zillow, Trulia, all these other um, places. And then we also sent it to this tiny, tiny, tight site called Zumper that at the time had no users. Over time, the tool became bigger and bigger, and over time, Zumper's consumer audience started growing. And so the way we kind of fake chicken and egg is, we, we harness the demand of other platforms in the short term to provide value to these landlords using the tool. And then over time, we started to grow Zumper's brand. And when it got big enough, we could actually shut off uh, a bunch of the syndication sites and actually just keep those listings to ourselves. And that's really where the flywheel of having supply side, having demand side that brings on more supply, that brings on more demand kicked off. But to get that flywheel going took two years. And it really took a bunch of like fake it till you make it where we kind of almost faked demand by sending the listing out to a bunch of competitive sites and sending those leads straight to our landlord. I think that was the one key insight we had in um, the early two years, but it was it, it was tiresome and it took a, uh, a lot of engineering work to achieve it. It's the it's the user zero strategy. Why does the first exactly. user use the thing? It won't be because of network effects or scale. It'll be because there is tangible value for the very first consumer of the product. And so you had to make something That's with it. net value that returned on their investment where they're like loading data into your thing. And, 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 and actually in media, to draw the parallel to this podcast, probably anybody who listens to, to some, something interesting and something valuable gets some value at it uh, just right away, right? 
you got to make it good. I guess that's a product mission to make the core thing good, but the user zero strategy. But I suppose you had in your mind two further steps. The, the first one, you call it faking it, but it's real. Um, reaching the broader audience through channels. There are people whose businesses channels, yep. and, and you know they're aggregating lots of other uh, content and listings, and you're actually providing them a service with high-quality content, aren't you? It was in their interest to publish you and to feature you well. Correct. And then it all falls apart when you start to build the consumer brand up where on our side, we wanted to stop syndicating out unique content because we wanted to only have it for renters on Zumper. And the flip side is the, the large public companies we were working with also see you getting bigger and they understand the game and they also don't want to support your growth, even though they lose some unique content. And it's hard. I mean, it, just to be blunt, it was we were we were one of the last startups to the game and a lot of our competitors at the time have, have since kind of failed. But it was really hard to focus on B2B first to solve the chicken and an egg where all our competitors at the time were focused on consumer and bragging about all these consumer numbers. And it was really difficult not to build a consumer brand. We were trying to solve a consumer problem. So for two years, we were building a, a building block, but it wasn't the end game, not even close to the end game. And imagine those all hands meetings where your kind of tech crunch is like on fire with what your competitors are bragging about and you guys haven't even solved the first stage of your problem. It, it takes like real resolve and perseverance to kind of convince the team that you're, you're doing the right thing, even if it's not the sexiest thing at the moment. Turns out it was the right strategy and, and the competitors who never built the supply side out didn't end up scaling. But that, that is hard and, and being focused to the point of being boring almost is uh, it's such a hard skill in a startup because there are so many distractions. Some of them are internal where you're tempted to chase somebody else's numbers or their press, I guess. I think, uh, I think one of the people just, just cut us off one day. And so I, I think I'd love to say that we have the choice on all of them, but I think after we announced certain venture rounds, I think these partners just cut you off and that they, they know the game is up and that, uh, they're, allowing you to harness their demand before you build yours. With, they, they know the trick to liquidity, and uh, you, you get dumped around the same time you think about bumping them. It, it's funny how it tends to happen around exactly the same time that everyone kind of knows that this can't continue forever. But it was uh, the best cheat to liquidity, and, and candidly, I think some companies have probably used Zonter in the last year to do the same, where we're pretty friendly with the startup ecosystem. I think a bunch of... Um, short-term rental companies have, have absolutely harnessed numbers to help them get demand before building something that might compete with us. But look, it's, it's all part of the game and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of room here. First, you were laying it out as big people cutting you off and you're getting shocks, your monthly uniques must be falling, you're freaking out, you're like, oh no, what are we going to do for distribution? Yeah, I mean, we, we're now big. So like, we're now doing you know, uh, tens of millions of visits a month in terms of traffic. So we, we're now at scale, and I think uh, as startups now in our space would kind of do the same thing to us that we used to do to, like, uh, the Zillows of the world when we launched, where we, we, you know, work with Zillow to send them our, our landlord's listings and harness their demand. People do that to us all the time now. So it's kind of it's just a weird evolution that five years in, we're now on the other side of that. And we see... Uh, the next generation of startups kind of leveraging Zumper to help build their own business. And you kind of have the same discussion of like, for a while it makes sense. After a while, we don't want to build competitors up. And so you kind of end up having the same discussion. 
so it's kind of funny when you you play the game and now you're on the other side of it and you have amazing empathy for the entrepreneurs doing it but at the same time you have a job to be protective with your own business and and competitive so it's just it's just funny when you become the platform that other people leverage to get their leg up um it, it's a weird feeling and it's 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 cool that we got to that scale but then you also have to take the same strategic decision of are you going to help build your some of your quasi competitors up or do you see them as part of the ecosystem and you just have to play friendly with them and we tended to be the latter yeah, I mean, now you're the big guy. Do you uh, calculate using this that they must have been calculating with, or do you have a different mindset when you think, I think about we're them a little up? friendlier? You phone them up and I, say, like "Pay to... me," or let's I, make a commercially, yeah, think... a mutually commercially <laughs> beneficial arrangement. Yeah, it ends up with the latter. Um, I think as long as these platforms that use us can deliver like an exceptional service to our renters, uh, that's okay. I think where where you have startups that were based and switchy or brokers that were based and switchy, they're, they're the ones where you kind of manage them off the platform. At the end of the day, for example, we want to have, uh, we want to have every listing in the U.S. that is available, uh, mainly on long-term rentals, but we also show short-term for residential. We want to have every single listing. And so ultimately, if a startup exclusively represents a building or something, we, we ultimately still want that listing. Zumper's job in the next five years is to make as many of those listings represented directly by Zumper so we can provide our renters with a much higher order experience. So instead of just saying, hey, you can send messages to this listing, you can actually pull out your phone in the open house and book it because it's all going through the Zumper backend, just like how Airbnb does for short term. I think it's on us to just make sure that more and more of the listings are Zumper listings controlled by our backend instead of just shown on Zumper. So I kind of see it as we can allow these startups to kind of post, but it's, it's on our sales team and on our product team to deliver a far better experience that ultimately brings more landlords onto the platform directly instead of through an intermediary. And I think it's like a good heat under our asses to make sure that we do that quickly because we see these guys and there's so much innovation in real estate going on at the moment. It's a good reminder yeah. we have to move fast. In a way, it, the, the choices of strategy there, uh, one way to contrast them would be to distinguish how Facebook treats itself as a platform and channel versus Amazon. In the case of Facebook, there's all these stories of people who built huge media businesses using the mechanics of Facebook until Facebook got jealous and simply turned them off. I mean, Upworthy yep. is a, a nice example, and there's a lot of other ones. And by yep. contrast, at Amazon, it seems like there is a loosely coupled internal team that seeks to build excellent products that its customers want, often informed by what its platform is showing. Like the wireless speaker might be a nice example as, as wireless right. and Bluetooth and they speakers started rolling. That's yeah. it. And they'll show you both. And I think we see ourselves much more as Amazon, where even if our margins are worse or even non-existent because they're free listings on competitive listings or just on listings that landlords post to us that don't use our full back end for the transaction, we have to show that, like like on Amazon, where you kind of feel like you're going to see everything. In real estate, for us as a search platform, the bar is even higher. This is You're going to spend a third of your income on your rent every month. And so you need to feel like you see everything on Zumper when you're searching. Now, a subset of what you see, just like how on Amazon, a subset of what you see is, is actually Amazon, you know, white label or directly produced by Amazon. Yes. 
Amazon want to obviously have a higher and higher percentage of their SKUs as Amazon's own product, where their their margins are probably significantly better. But um, it's kind of like on Amazon's team to just make sure that of a hundred listings on a results page, eight are Amazon's own products instead of two, and that has really not not much to do with the competition. It has to do with Amazon's own execution, and just like you say, you can actually inform what you should build and how you should get that supply by what other people list. So I, I agree, it's much more Amazon than it is Facebook, but that's a it's a really good parallel to bring it up. Yeah, and I and and I hear in your strategy the sort of different steps and waves of how you become big, an obsession with what the customer ultimately wants, which is assortment selection, that's the reason they come, and then you want to be able to do the deal with them, and that's on you to deliver them the thing they want to do the deal with. And so I think it's a, it's a really powerful learning as well as, as you move through these waves. And Demos, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom. I think I'm going to have to think hard about how I make in the know the first starting point for someone who's searching for an apartment. I may not, I may not get there. I'll have to point it at a different strategy, perhaps. Um, no, thanks for having me. It was really fun, and uh, congrats on the tell and everything you guys are doing. Pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye.